Today's reading comes from Matthew 5, 31 to 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You may be seated. All right, as you're seated, let me pray for us. Father, we ask you as we look at this text, the difficulty of this, the messiness of this, the pain and sorrow contained in this topic, um, we ask you that you would open our hearts that we might believe the truth. We ask you that you would pour your grace out upon us, Lord, that we would experience the comfort of knowing that we are yours. Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus. We thank you for the truth of your word and that you want the flourishing of your people. We pray that we would live in line with your will, that we might flourish in Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, just before I jump right in, I do want to thank publicly um, Dr. George Guthrie for stepping in on short notice last Sunday. Um, my surgeon's recommended timeline and my recommended timeline did not uh, line up. And um, so my surgeon's recommended timeline won out. Uh, which meant that I needed somebody to step in last week and preach for me. And so uh, fantastic to have Dr. Guthrie as part of our congregation and to be able to step in and do what he did last Sunday. Very thankful for that. And um, doing what he did on short notice is wonderful. So thank you, George. And uh, as we do continue in our series here in the Sermon on the Mount, we obviously now are looking at what Jesus has to say about divorce. Figured the timing was great because Valentine's Day is this week. And so we would talk about divorce. We always like to line our things up with the cultural calendar around here. Probably the last funny thing I'm going to say today, just so you know, uh, this is not exactly a light topic. Um, there is nobody in this room who has not been impacted negatively by divorce in some way, shape, or form. Whether it's your grandparents, your extended family, your parents, your co-workers, your friends, uh, whether it's you who's been through divorce, you just know this is painful, painful stuff. Um, I want to realize, uh, I, want to, I, I do realize the sensitivity that I need to have in this and the emotion that this evokes and uh, I want to do my best to bring some light and some hope to the darkness and pain of divorce. That's what I want to look at today. But we do need to think biblically about the topic of divorce. Because what we think about divorce reflects what we think about marriage. And what we think about marriage reflects what we think about love. And what we think about love reflects what we think about God. So this is why it's so important for us to think biblically about the topic of divorce. So, so hear me when I say this. We're confused about divorce because we're confused about marriage. Confused about marriage because we're confused about love. We're confused, I think, about love because we've inherited a cultural, worldly definition of love where love is basically self-centered and self-serving, which is in contrast to the biblical teaching on love, which is based on the nature and character of God. God's love for us that then calls for a God-centered, others-focused, others-serving definition of love in our lives. Thankfully, Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so we know that though we may have lots of different definitions of love and marriage and divorce, we, by the Holy Spirit, can have our minds renewed and be transformed by the truth of God's word to find out what is the will of God for us as it pertains to this very important, difficult topic. 
So if we're willing to submit ourselves to the revealed will of God in Scripture, we can have our minds renewed. We can then relearn the true nature of biblical love, which means that we can have a foundation that we can build our marriages upon and how we understand what marriage looks like, which will help us to make sense of Jesus' teaching on divorce. That's basically my outline. God's love, biblical marriage, and what Jesus says about divorce. Again, we cannot understand Jesus' teaching on divorce unless we understand biblical marriage, and we can't understand biblical marriage if we don't understand love, and we can't rightly understand love unless we start with God. So let's start. God's love. We live in the created world, which means we have a creator, God. We live in the world that God created, but we need to take a step back from that for a moment and recognize that God preceded his creation. Before all of creation, God eternally existed. It says in Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So before there was anything, there was God. And this is important because love did not begin once God created the world and humanity. From eternity past, before the foundation of creation was spoken, God is love. Theologians have lots of big words that they use to try and explain the interrelation of God And the love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. You may have heard the word Trinity to describe God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God in three. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. But the point here is within the interrelatedness of God, love has always existed. Love did not come into being when God spoke the creation into being. Love predated that because God has eternally existed. In the Old Testament, God reveals his love to us in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 as we read the story of creation. We need to know that God created out of the overflow of his love that he might share his love and glory with his creation. God's love is the literal point of origin for all things. God's love is then the foundation for the interrelatedness of all things. So as we have relationships of love, we need to recognize that that is based upon the interrelatedness of the love of God. God created humanity. And when our first parents in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, when they fell into sin and they rebelled against God, we need to see that he did not remove his love from them. He created out of the overflow of his love, but humanity's sin did not stop his love or end his love. In fact, there's a promise right there in Genesis chapter 3 about the depth of the love of God for his people because in the midst of their rebellion and their lostness, he actually promises to save and redeem. God's love is evident in his creation, yes. It's evident in the way that he made the world and the way that he made humanity and the way that he called humanity. He says he created them male and female. He said it was very good. 
And God's love is evident in the way that he promised to redeem when they fell out of relationship with him. So when humanity fractured the relationship between God and man, God promises to save. We see God's steadfast love toward his people from the very beginning. Because God's love existed before the very beginning. We see God's steadfast love, Genesis 12 and 15. We see God's steadfast love on Abraham, who he chose to be the father of his people. We see God's steadfast love for Abraham's son Isaac, and for his son Jacob, and for his sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. For all of his people. God set his affection upon a particular people. Yes, God loves the world, but then he set his steadfast love, his covenant love, on a particular people. This continues all the way from Genesis through to the New Testament where we see that Jesus comes. The Father sends the Son. The arrival of Jesus. Jesus came into the world because God so loved the world. So from the very beginning and before the very beginning, God is love. And from that point forward, now we can say Genesis to Revelation all the way through the scriptures. We understand the love of God is the very foundation of how we are to relate to one another and then to the whole world around us. God revealed himself in this way. There's a word used for love, the steadfast love I'm talking about in the Old Testament. It's used like 250 times. I'll take you to one of my favorites. Exodus 34, verse 6, it says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's God revealing himself to Moses. Moses goes up on the mountain and, and God says, hey, here's who I am. God of mercy and grace, slow to anger, but abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness is how God relates to his people. It's how he has always related to his people, not because this is how he chose to relate to his people, but because it is who he is in his very nature and character. Steadfast love is who he is. Steadfast love and faithfulness is costly. Yes, God created the world out of the overflow of his love, that he might share his love with his creation. But when they sinned against him, rebelled against him, <laughs> promises to redeem and redemption is costly. It's the biblical foundation for love. We have to hang on to this. See, if we absorb a cultural definition of love, it has more to do with the Hollywood romance has more to do with personal fulfillment, has more to do with self-expression and self-advancement, sexual satisfaction, the kind of stuff that we see in the movies and the novels and things that are going on. We see that as a cultural definition of love, and if that's the definition we're working with, no wonder we're confused. But by God's grace, in his good and loving design, when we're talking about marital love, which we're looking at today, love can be romantic and fulfilling and expressive, and advancing, and satisfying. There's nothing wrong with any of that. I've been married for 16 and a half years. I thank God for all of that. But the point is, that's not the definition of love. And if we start with that definition where it's the romantic feelings-oriented, self-expression, self-serving kind of love that we see defined around us, if we start with that, we're going to miss the rest of it. But I'm saying to you, if you start with the definition of God's love, biblical love, you get all of that thrown in. If we come to the topic of love with a cultural understanding, 
it makes sense why we don't understand love. It makes sense then why we are confused about marriage and why the teaching of Jesus on divorce is perhaps obscure to us. Biblical love is self-sacrificial, it's others-centered, and it's built on a foundation that transcends our convenience. We're called to love like this because this is how we've been loved. So this kind of love, the love of God, it, it can't be summed up in just kind of a phrase. There's a few words in the Old Testament that try and help us understand this. There's one word that's particularly helpful. It's a covenantal term. It says there's a commitment that God has made to his people irrespective of their failure to uphold their end of the bargain. It's a covenantal term. It's loaded with all kinds of God's attributes. It's, it's like they're all piled into one term. It's that, it's that word that we saw in Exodus 34, that steadfast love. It, it, it deals with his love and his covenant faithfulness and his mercy and his grace and his kindness and his loyalty. It's referring to acts of devotion when, when it's lived out and loving kindness that goes beyond the requirements of duty. That's the kind of love we're talking about when we talk about biblical love. Kind of covenant love means that God is with us and that he's for us. Now, to put a finer point on it as we talk about this issue of divorce, Scott McKnight said, this covenant understanding of love means marital love reflects God's love, which means a divorce destroys the reflection of the God who is utterly faithful. Marital love, then, is defined by God's love. Our love for our spouse is to be with them and to be for them. So the foundation of our love for one another is revealed to us in the nature and character of God. It's who he is. And that love we can see existing within the Trinity as the Father and the Son and the Spirit love. It's evidenced in creation in the way that God created the world and humanity, set his affection on his people. It's seen in the work of redemption most clearly, most boldly, when we behold the work of Jesus on the cross, that is love. It's redeeming love. I said we're confused about divorce because we're confused about marriage because we're confused about love. That is God's love. Secondly, we need to look at this. What about biblical marriage? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Just look at verse 31 again. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You see, that's in quotation marks. See, marriage is God's idea. Paul the Apostle, who wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus, he's quoting from Genesis chapter 2. So let me show you what Genesis chapter 2 says, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman 
and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is what Paul is quoting in Ephesians chapter 5. This is the first wedding. You, you ever been to a wedding? Right? The door opens at the back. There's an aisle. It comes right down the middle. And the minister's standing where I'm standing, and the groom's standing here, nervous. The door's open at the back, and she walks in the door. And he just kind of goes, meh. Meh. No, you haven't seen that. Because the guy responds like Adam. At last, it's come. It's my wife. That's the first biblical marriage. It's glorious. Here's my point. Marriage was not an idea invented by the government of Canada to give you a tax break in exchange for procreation. Okay? That's the point. Marriage is God's idea. Marriage is God's idea. Genesis 2 tells us that marriage is a relationship that God instituted between one man and one woman before humanity fell into sin. God created us to be relational in this way. I want us to see this, that that marriage in the Bible is in Genesis 2 before sin enters into the human history, the human story in Genesis chapter 3. The institution of marriage was before there was fragmentation and brokenness between us and God and between us and one another. This is so important. This is what Paul's quoting. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. This mystery, it says in verse 32, is profound and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Right? This is the origin of marriage in the Bible. God invented it, but we then have to look at what he says, the mystery of marriage. Paul writes to his friends at the church in Ephesus, and he says that marriage is a profound mystery. A mega mysterion. And all the married people were like, uh-huh. That's not what he meant. Keep reading. That might be true, but that's not what he meant. The married, <laughs> profound mystery. And I'm saying it refers to Christ in the church. Marriage is God's idea. Marriage is not primarily about you. Marriage is not primarily about us. Marriage is sacramental. That means that marriage is a visible sign of an invisible reality. It's an outward display of a hidden truth. Marriage is not primarily about you. Because marriage points to Jesus and his church. One commentator said, this is George Knight, he said, Paul saw that when God designed the original marriage, he already had Christ and the church in mind. This is one of God's great purposes in marriage, to picture the relationship between Christ and his redeemed people forever. Genesis 2 marriage. It's not like the writers of Scripture, it's not like Paul was writing this letter to the Ephesians and he's sitting there going, oh man, if I could just get a metaphor that would, that would help to explain and, and properly explain the relationship between Jesus and the church and this eternal union. If I could just find a metaphor, hey, hang on, marriage works. <laughs> That's not what he's doing. It's the other way around. 
Marriage is patterned after the eternal relationship between Jesus and his church. Marriage points us to the greater reality that's at play here. I'm going to come back to that. I'm going to come back to that, so just put a pin in it. God's love is evidenced in biblical marriage when we're willing to lay our life down for the other. And I don't care if you're talking about communication or you're talking about finances or you're talking about sex or you're talking about the dishes. If you love and serve one another as Christ has loved and served the church, you will be living in the truth of this profound mystery and your marriage will flourish. But if you think love is goosebumps on your goosebumps and, and butterflies in your stomach, oh, what happens when you don't feel that? See, if that's what you think love is, chances are you will stop short of serving one another in the biblical definition of love, and your marriage will shrink and shrivel and die. I said we're confused about divorce because we're confused about a biblical vision of marriage, because we're confused about a biblical vision of love. So we look at God's love as the foundation, biblical marriage as the revelation of what this looks like when it's lived out, this sacramental reality of the visible sign of the invisible reality of the union between Christ and his church. But third, what Jesus says about divorce, Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In the time and place that Jesus spoke this Sermon on the Mount, there was a deeply entrenched conversation around what justified a divorce. This is the context that Jesus is speaking into. Jesus is Jewish. The rabbis around him have a conversation ongoing about what justifies a divorce. When Jesus said, whoever divorced, he says, it was also said, he's talking about the way they were talking, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. He's basically summarizing Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4. You can look at that text. What justifies a divorce? Now, I know that some of you probably came today to look at this text with a similar kind of question. And I'm going to get to the answers to that question. I'm going to but I don't think that's actually the point of the text. Stanley Hauerwas said, if we come to this text looking for reasons to justify divorce, we miss the whole point. What this text does is to redefine marriage and to anchor it in the new community of Jesus, a community that will make possible both the single life and fidelity. So what that means is that you, on one hand it means, that you are not defined by your marital status. He says, second sentence in the quote, what this text does is to redefine marriage and anchor it in the new community of Jesus, a community that will make possible both the single life and fidelity. See, if you were single in Jesus' day, there was a problem. And some of you who are single feel like that's still happening today. Can I just tell you it's not true? Okay, singleness is not a disease to be eradicated. You can serve God just fine when you're single. Those of you who are not married need not feel 
like you are somehow lesser when you walk in here on a Sunday. It's just not true. And I know that you feel it because I hear about it. It's not true. You're sitting beside like 80% of people who are married, and there's like 150 kids running around all the time. And you go, I'm single. I feel like I stick out. No. In the new community of Jesus, you are not defined by your marital status. There's a way to serve God in this, whether you're married or single. It's a way to serve God if you're married, single, or divorced. Your marital status is not your primary identifier in the new community of Jesus' people. Jesus uses the same kind of formula in this text that we saw when he talked about anger and lust. He said about anger, you have heard it said, you shall not murder, but I'm telling you don't even be angry. Right? If you stop anger, you by default stop murder. He says, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, you shall not look at a woman with lustful intent. That means that there's to be no lustful intent in our hearts. Again, if you can stop the lustful intent, you're not going to be committing adultery. There's a new way to understand what it means to be human in the new community of Jesus. And so he says, you have heard it said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So the conversation that's happening in his moment in time is around the biblical justification for divorce. Two main schools of thought within the rabbinical tradition. The rabbis, the teachers in Judaism, had two kind of main focuses. One was more liberal, basically meant that a husband could divorce his wife for pretty much any reason. And I'm not making this up. This is written down. You, you could find a document and read this, that the teaching of the day was that a husband could divorce his wife for any manner of things, like if she spoke disrespectfully to him, if she was not pleasing to him anymore, if she burnt his dinner. I promise you I'm not making it up. Okay, that was the more liberal take on it. Very lax understanding of marriage and divorce. The more conservative one was that you could divorce your wife if she committed adultery on you, or if she basically went out and did something and looked in a certain way like she was promiscuous or not faithful to you. So if she went out with her hair down, no sleeves, slits on her skirt, you could issue her a certificate of divorce. That was the more conservative view. Jesus comes to them, and he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus here is talking about sexual sin that breaks down a marital covenant. They were living in compromise in that day with a lax view on what constituted the grounds for divorce. And Jesus is responding to that laxity by removing all of those other conditions except adultery. So because marriage is a foundational institution that was put in place before humanity fell into sin, Jesus knows that marriage is a gift, that it's beautiful, that it's holy, and that it represents something much larger than that relationship itself. Jesus holds, and I want to be clear about this, Jesus holds to a Genesis 2 understanding of marriage, though he lives in a Genesis 3 fallen world. Jesus holds to a Genesis 2 understanding of marriage, though he lives in a Genesis 3 
fallen world. I think we should as well. That's why he's reacting against this laxity in the way that Jewish men in his generation were looking at the topic of divorce. And and I think it's why the Church of Jesus today needs to be very clear on the issue of divorce. When two become one, it's a biblical picture of marriage. It's not something that should be separated. It says in Matthew 19, verse 3, And Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful, look at this question, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Verse 4, Jesus answers, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I love it when they come and ask Jesus questions and he doesn't answer their question. Is it okay to divorce a woman for any cause, any reason? Jesus is like, have you read your Bible? Great answer. Don't you see the original institution of the first marriage? John Stott said the Pharisees, those are the ones who came and questioned Jesus, the Pharisees were preoccupied with the grounds for divorce, Jesus with the institution of marriage. He keeps going, verse 7 of Matthew 19. They said to him, why then did Moses command, that's an important word in the text, one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, because of the hardness, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. He's saying, you live in a Genesis 3 world, but don't understand marriage in light of Genesis 3. Understand marriage in light of Genesis 2. Verse 9 says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Again, John Stott said, The Pharisees called Moses' provision for divorce a command. Jesus called it a concession to the hardness of human hearts. The Pharisees regarded divorce lightly. Jesus took it so seriously that with only one exception, he called all remarriage after divorce adultery. Let me try and summarize what I've said so far and how I think we need to handle this as followers of Jesus. What I'm going to do is just give five practical, matter-of-the-fact statements that will hopefully answer the questions that you probably came with today. They're valid questions. Again, I don't think it's the thrust of the text because there's something else going on, but we do need to have clarity on what we think about divorce. The first point is that biblical marriage is a lifelong union between one man and one woman to the exclusion of all others. And marriage was given to us by God in Genesis 2 before sin entered into the human story. Secondly, because we live in a Genesis 3 fallen world where the effects of sin are ongoing, though we are redeemed, we are being redeemed, though we are saved, we are being saved, and it requires repentance on our behalf because we are not living perfect lives before God. This is the mess of the world that we live in. Because we live in a Genesis 3 world, there are two exceptions, two reasons that justify divorce. The first, biblical divorce is permitted, but not required, on the basis of sexual immorality. We just saw that Matthew 5, Matthew 19. I know people where there's been adultery, and they've reconciled their marriage, and they've worked to save it. It's permissible to divorce. It's not required. I know people who 
there was adultery in the marriage and they just weren't able to reconcile. That's permissible. Secondly, divorce is biblically permitted but not required on the basis of desertion by an unbelieving spouse. This comes from 1 Corinthians 7, and I'm not going to take you there, but I encourage you to go read it. 1 Corinthians 7 says that if there's people, a couple, and one of them becomes a Christian, and the other person goes, look, I'm not having it. I'm out of here. And that person deserts the believing spouse. The unbelieving spouse deserts the believing spouse and abandons them. Divorce is then permitted. And that's very important for us to note because where divorce is permitted, I'm going to get to this in a minute, remarriage is also permitted. Those are the two biblical exceptions for divorce. Now, I would add with a boatload of caution, I would add that there are times in abusive situations where it's no longer safe to remain with that partner. We need to pay attention to this. I think we've missed it on this at times. On both sides, if I could say we've missed it in both ditches, there have been times where it's, we don't really get along anymore and sometimes she raises her voice at me and we go, that's abusive, you got to get out. I, I don't know. I don't know. Other times, I think there's been abuse in marriages, particularly where women have been battered, and the church has said, no, that's not a condition for divorce. Go home. That's not me, and that's not us. I'll quote Kevin DeYoung. He says, I think it is safer biblically to maintain that there are two acceptable grounds for divorce, but having said that, I could envision in extreme situations the elders might conclude this man or woman has not completely disappeared, but his life is tantamount to desertion. If a guy is strung out on drugs, gambling all their worldly possessions, and has repeatedly beaten his wife, might that count as desertion at some point? This is why each case needs to be dealt with individually. It's also why we need biblical principles so we have something to apply in these gut-wrenching, difficult, sinful scenarios. So two biblically two biblical exceptions to divorce and then a, a cautious third that I include because I think it's important. My third point here. When divorce was not permissible, which means it was anything other than those things that I just listed. Subsequent remarriage results in adultery. And I would, I would qualify that by saying subsequent remarriage to anybody other than your original spouse. Allison and I have friends, and Brian and Amy. They originally got married, wasn't going very well, and they divorced each other, and then they both went off in their own different directions, and they both kind of got caught up in the gospel again. They both had a revelation of who God was in their life and how good he was. And, and independent of one another, this is what was going on. And then they actually met and they reconciled. They have a wonderful marriage. They actually teach on this stuff now. So you can remarry the original spouse. But what it's saying is when divorce was not permissible, subsequent remarriage results in adultery. Okay, fourth point. In situations where the divorce was permissible, so Matthew 5, Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7. It's in Mark and Luke as well. Where the situation where the divorce was permissible, then remarriage is permissible. And fifth, improperly divorced and remarried Christians should stay as they are. There are people who got divorced for reasons that would not be included in the biblical exceptions for divorce and then have been remarried. And I would say that people who have remarried in what the Bible would define as an adulterous marriage, 
need to stay as they are, but just repent of their sin and be forgiven of their past. Run to the cross. You're not outpacing God's grace with your sin. It's not ideal. It's not the design for human flourishing, but God will still work in you and with you. He is for you and he is with you. Now, if you are divorced and the grounds for that divorce were not biblically permitted, as I've just laid out, and you're thinking about getting remarried, I would say you should stay single. Don't jump into what would be defined as an adulterous marriage and just say, I'll repent later. You don't know when God will harden your heart. Don't walk in willful disobedience. I would caution you. Come and sit and talk down with us. Come and sit down and, and, and talk with us about this. We struggle with Jesus' teaching on divorce because we don't have a great vision of biblical marriage. And we have a, a weak vision of biblical marriage because we have a cultural understanding of love rather than a biblical understanding of love. And a biblical understanding of love is always going to begin and end with God. So if we start with God and his love in our lives, we can then apply that to the way that the scriptures reveal marriage, Genesis 2, all the way through. We can then build our foundation on God's love in a covenant marriage, covenant love one for the other, helps us to understand what Jesus is saying about divorce. Let me close with this. Earlier I said marriage is patterned after the eternal relationship between Jesus and his church. I said marriage points us beyond our own marriages to the greater reality that is at play. It says in Ephesians chapter 5, the mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Jesus' high view of marriage is based on Genesis 2, and the so-called exception clause that we see here in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 that allows divorce in the case of adultery is based on the reality that we live in a Genesis 3 fallen world. I think divorce is so antithetical to the gospel because Jesus' love for his bride, the church, does not have an exception clause. Jesus is the groom, and we as the church are the bride, and he's not looking for a way out. He's all in. He's going to love us until we're lovely. There's something bigger going on in our marriages. It points us to the reality that we are loved by God in a covenant, faithful way. Steadfast love and faithfulness is ours in Christ. Like Jesus says, you have failed miserably, stained with sin. You've wandered from me in unfaithfulness. But, but then he comes to us. And he says, let me bind up your wounds. Let me cleanse you from your sin. Let me lay down my life for yours. And when I take it back up, I am coming for you with love that has the force of a hurricane. I'm coming for you with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever kind of love. It's a steadfast love and faithfulness that does not give up. That's how he loves us. Christ City, the gospel of Jesus is so good. Jesus is the groom, and we as the church are the bride. And he looks on us and he says, I know what you've done, and I love you. You're mine. 
Not only will I have and hold you until death do us part, but I'm telling you that through my death, we will never part. I'm telling you that through my death, you will be made clean. Through my resurrection, you will receive new life. Through our union together, you will be whole. Jesus says, my union with you knows no bounds. It has no exception clause and will fill you with everlasting joy. That's why marriage is so important. You know, we think about marriage and we look at people who are getting married and we look at him and we go, you do not know what you're getting into. And we look at her and we say, you do not know what you're getting into. I just tell you that Jesus knew what he was getting into and he did it for you. He's all in. The gospel as a picture, or marriage as a, as a picture of the gospel, Jesus the groom, us as the bride, there's no exception clause. It's why marriage matters. It's why divorce breaks the heart of God. It's, it's why his love has to be the foundation and example and empowerment for our marriages as the visible sign of this invisible reality of God's love for his people. If we rightly understand his love, we will rightly define our marriages. And if we rightly define our marriages, we'll rightly understand Jesus' teaching on divorce. And if we rightly understand Jesus' teaching on divorce, and we rightly understand what marriage truly looks like, and it's all based on God's love, we will be people who can shine that light into the darkness of the world around us. There is grace and mercy for us in Christ. Stand with me as we respond. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.